on the record, and uh, this is the 15th of November, and uh, I'm at the Alaska Native Foundation speaking with Mr. Emil Nadi, um, president of the Alaska Native Foundation and a former president of AFN, uh, about the Native Claims Settlement Act and, and the efforts of the Native community to organize uh, itself in the early days to uh, lobby Congress to that end. And I guess the is a good way to start, since hopefully this tape is someday going to end up at the university years after we're all gone, uh, might be a little biographical information in terms of sort of when and where you were born and where you went to school and how you ended up uh, being in Anchorage in the early 60s at the time that CINA was getting organized. Yeah, I was born in March 11th, 1933, in the village of Kayakuk at that's on the Yukon River, the confluence of the Kaikuk River and the Yukon. <coughs> uh, there were a hundred people in Kaikuk in 1933. There are a hundred people in Kaikuk in 19, almost 1990 now. Um, I left the Yukon when I was 11 years old to go to a boarding school because that was the extent of the schooling system in Ruby at the time. So I went to Iklutna which was <clears throat> 20 miles outside of Anchorage, the old Eklutna boarding school operated by a Bureau of Indian Affairs. Uh, the, the fall of 1945, they shut down the Eklutna school and moved it to a abandoned army base in Seward and still called it the Eklutna school. Um, in 1948, they shut down the Seward school and moved it to the abandoned Navy base, Japonski Island in Sitka, which was became Mount Edgecombe School. And they combined Ikutna and uh, Wrangell Institute to make one one bigger school for of Mount Edgecombe. Uh, after Mount Edgecombe, 1951, I graduated and spent four years in the Navy. After the Navy, I <coughs> spent five years uh, getting a degree in engineering and electronics. Then I spent five years around Los Angeles working uh, as a research and design engineer, did some work on the Minuteman guidance or test equipment system. When I returned to Anchorage, uh, those were the days before civil rights when India... When, when, let me stop you. When did you return to Anchorage? I returned to Anchorage in 1963. No, I'll take that. Yeah, 63. <clears throat> That's before before the earthquake. Uh, back then, before civil rights days, Indian people did not have names. You know, when you when you saw. Uh, the hunters, Alaska was wide open for hunting. A lot of big-name people were coming to Alaska to hunt. It was always uh, some big-name movie star and Indian guide They in the newspapers. The local papers and even the sporting national sporting magazines never had names for, for Indian people or Native people or whoever they were. They were just guides. That was <clears throat> an era of uh, what I considered social injustice. And and uh, there was, I met a man named Nick Gray. Well, let me, before we get to talking about Nick, um, 
Um, what was how were, were Alaska Natives treated in Anchorage in those days? Was there a, did you feel discrimination in the you know in the restaurant? I mean, I, I know that since the '40s, in theory, it had been against the law, but but was there a feeling of, of sort of second-class citizenship, or did you notice it? Or it it was noticeable. It always existed, and with different people, there were a lot of good people, but there were always uh, people who. Uh, showed the dislike for Native people. <clears throat> it, it did exist, okay. discrimination, in, in restaurants and hotels and other places, public places. Okay. Well, anyway, re returning to Nick Gray. Um, and Nick had uh, uh, walked the streets in Fairbanks, and mainly on the issue of education and boarding schools, he, uh, he formed Fairbanks Native Association. And after he got that going, he came to Anchorage, <coughs> yeah, where I met him, and he walked the streets in Anchorage, buttonholing people and saying, we need a place to meet, and we have to talk about some of the social injustice, and uh, injustice being uh, high unemployment, uh, the worst health statistics in America, half the, half the average age of uh, the rest of America, three times infant mortality, the worst tuberculosis epidemic ever recorded in the world, uh, the worst housing conditions, um, low educational achievement, all, all these things uh, that uh, Nick was concerned about. And, and uh, Now, did, did Nick come down from Fairbanks just to organize the Anchorage community, or did he have a job down here? How was he supporting himself? I, I suspect that it was the main reason was to organize. He... He did not have steady work, and uh, <clears throat> I, I don't know how he supported himself. And so he he was instrumental in getting the first meeting of CINA going. And then <clears throat> under his kind of tutelage, I became president of CINA. And well, let, well, let me back up a second. I, I had heard that... Uh, that prior to CINA, that there had actually been a a somewhat disorganized camp of the Alaska Native Brotherhood That's true. in Anchorage. That's and true. That, were you involved in that at all? or No, I was not. Uh, Nick was involved in it, <coughs> and Nick, when I talked to him, he said he loved the name Alaska Native Brotherhood to, to be across Alaska, but uh, the structural problems of A and B he decided it was easier to start a new organization than to try to uh, buck the uh, power structure within A and B. So he started uh, these native associations. Most of them were unincorporated uh, associations. And well, also let me let me also back you up um, in terms of the first meeting of CINA. Do you remember where that was and who else was there? And uh, there were. Uh, the organization meeting was, uh, I think, over here at Alaska Native Hospital. There's a little meeting room there. <coughs> um, I think May Stanley was there. Uh, Henrietta Ivanoff. Uh, I don't remember her married name, but that was her maiden name. Uh, Nick Gray's brother, Clinton Gray, and Clinton Gray's wife. Uh, was there. There were probably uh, 
25 people at that first meeting. And basically, Nick, however, was the guy that really Nick, got everybody out to show up to it. Right. Yeah. And then we used, we used the CINA. We raised money and small amounts of money in various ways and sent Nick around the state. Nick was responsible. He was very articulate and persuasive. We sent him into Cordova to form uh, Chugash Natives. We sent him to Kodiak to help the Canna. We sent him into uh, Bethel to form Cuscoon Valley Native Associations. Tony Lewis, <coughs> he, he went and, and tried to bolster the Arctic Native Brotherhood Gnome, which existed a long time, but he would help them. And uh, so that was kind of the forerunner of AFN. He always dreamed of a statewide meeting. Okay, now, um, <clears throat> a couple things in that regard. One, when, what was the approximate date of all this? Was this in 63 that Nick got this started, or after the earthquake in 64? Yeah, it would have been 64 and 65. Mm -hmm. So it had been 64 <clears throat> that, the, that this organizational meeting was. I think that's about right, yeah. Okay. And then I guess the other thing that I have become quite interested in, in terms of, of tracking how all this works, is you mentioned that, that you had various fundraisers that were then able to support the logistics of getting Nick out and about. What what kind of, of activities were available in those days to raise money? Obviously, it's not like going to the legislature and getting a grant the way we, no. <laughs> the way we do it today. How did you guys support well, we, the operation? We would raise $200 at a time. We would do it on uh, <clears throat> with uh, bake sales and uh, dinners and just donations from people, $5, $10 donations. And uh, we were able to raise a couple hundred dollars at a time. And so then that was used for, like, Nick's plane tickets. And right. Okay. Okay. Then it came, uh, we get to AFN. <clears throat> well, let me also back up. But you indicate that um, that um, Nick was always very interested in trying to get the Native community organized on a statewide basis. Obviously, in, in, uh, in that same era, Howard Rock and Fairbanks, if you read his early writings, he was of a similar mind, and he and Nick... I think we're probably fairly close in, in Fairbanks. So I guess the question is, first of all, whether that assumption is correct. Were, were Nick and Howard close? And to what extent do you think Nick influenced Howard's thinking? And to what extent do you think Howard influences Nick's thinking? Or do you have any feeling for that? Uh, not much. <clears throat> uh, they both had some concerns. And they were, I think, parallel concerns. And even... Uh, aspirations for a statewide movement, but uh, just how well they communicated or how closely, I don't know. Okay, was, was the Tender Times, obviously the Tender Times had got going in 62 at that point, um, was that a, a, a major organizing vehicle by the time you guys started CINA? Did the Tender Times have a lot of influence in the Native community? Or? Um, not so much in CINA, but with AFN they were instrumental. Right, well that's a little, I mean, it's a year or two yeah, later. Right. Well, but so in the early days, it was more of a Fairbanks operation. Yeah. Okay. Okay, well, um, I guess um, was, in addition to, um, to you know, raising relatively modest amounts of money to assist Nick in his statewide organizing effort, what, between its founding in 64 and when AFN got going in 66, what other kinds of activities were CINA involved in? <coughs> Nick was uh, was concerned about the school district, and he would meet with officials there about 
high dropout rates and a lot of th similar things that go on today. <coughs> Treatment of native kids. He was concerned about operations of the hospital, about uh, the rural people coming in and maybe having operations that they didn't need. Or <coughs> I think specifically he was concerned one time about kind of routinely performing hysterectomies on people who really didn't uh, understand that the suggestion by a doctor wasn't the law. And he was always concerned about this communications gap between the <coughs> rural rural people and uh, professionals. He was concerned with uh, <coughs> a place for people to get off the street and meet, <coughs> similar to what's going on today. When someone comes to town, they have no place to go, so they end up finding people on the street and end up in the bars, and so it's, it becomes a cycle that no one has been able to break, even now. But that's the kind of thing Nick was that's trying to deal with. Nick was working on all the time. Was it uh, <clears throat> in terms of the people that were who were most active, um, you know, as opposed to just showing up at, at the normally scheduled CINA meetings? Was it basically you and Nick? Was there anybody else really out doing stuff, or was it pretty much the two of you? Well, it was Nick out front, and I was a supporting role for him, and then. We had a whole bunch of people in here that were active. Uh, <clears throat> Shirley Tucker was local woman. Um, two women I mentioned before, Henrietta and May Stanley. Uh, Agnes Deer, Lloyd Avacama, Lloyd Avacana. And Lucy became active uh, after, right about the time of the earthquake. Um, I can't remember, um, Watson, Dave, uh, Donald Watson, and uh, a number of people, as they could, they participated and, and supported what you, Alice Brown. Mm -hmm. <coughs> but what, uh, <coughs> what did the, uh, sort of the non-native city fathers think of CINA? Was, was Atwood and these people, uh, did they view CINA as a positive development, or they tensions about, you know, natives getting uppity, or was there any feeling at all about that? Uh, I suppose there was some concern about what we were up to. Uh, they weren't really sure, but <clears throat> I became aware that we were, <clears throat> as a group, one of the biggest meetings going on in town. Because when I started to uh, uh, pick up for, for Nick, uh, he would send me on assignments, and I would make some speeches around town. I became aware that we were we were one of the biggest, most active groups in town. Uh, I'd go before the Republican weekly luncheon and talk to 15 people, very influential people in town. I'd go before the Democratic people and find 25 people at the Democratic Club. And we'd go to our CINA meeting, we'd have 40 to 60 people. So it wasn't long before... Uh, politicians started appearing before us on our monthly meetings and we'd have a main speaker and a lot of encouragement but but it was apparent to me that we were uh, becoming recognized as, as someone to touch base with. So when you say politicians you mean <coughs> Bartlett and Greening and Ralph Rivers and those kinds of guys? Bartlett and Greening, Ralph Rivers and local, <coughs> local racers. 
Okay, now aspirants, <clears throat> like baggage and others. Right. <laughs> right. Now the the other thing before we actually get up to the the AFN era is uh, reading uh, Leo Morgan's book about Howard Rock. Um, it was interesting. <coughs> there was a <coughs> a brief reference in her book to I guess was an interview with Clint Gray that said that that at least in his judgment in a large to a large extent, he thought a lot of Nick's thinking had been influenced by Bill Paul. Do you recall Bill Paul being around at all at that stage of the game, or Nick being in communication with him? I didn't know they knew each other, but uh, William Paul was not part of that early movement. He became active with us uh, in AFN. Right, but not in the not not <coughs> early days. Well, actually, I think where they would have. He, um, Al Kessler invited Bill Paul up to the 1963 Tanana Chiefs meeting, mm. and I know that Nick was was a prominent participant in that, so that's where they would have gotten hooked up. But other than that reference in Lael's book, I'd never heard that before, and yeah. I certainly hadn't seen uh, any sign of Bill Paul at that <clears throat> stage of the working. Roy Pradovich was part of that meeting in Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. He was a, you know, he was like probably the highest ranking native at the BIA at that point. Right. right? So, um, well, I guess that does sort of take us up to to '66 and the circumstances surrounding uh, um, the first what became a meeting of AFN. And I, I guess as a preliminary matter, um, at some point onto the scene comes Albert Kaloa and and people over at Tyonic. Um, were they involved, uh, was Albert Kloh or any of Rima McCord or any of the Tyonic people involved early on in CINA, or how did they get in, get hooked up with you and Nick? They got hooked up with us after we started the uh, trying to get the first meeting, a statewide meeting, together. <coughs> I'll get into that. Okay, later. sure. There, there's always some feeling that uh, there was encroachment upon lifestyles in rural Alaska. Was, everything stemmed from rural Alaska. The uh, Nick used to tell a story about years ago, if you wanted to put up a fish camp, you just went up the river, and when you found the likely spot, you used it. When you went trapping, you had your regular traps lines, and if, if things uh, got trapped out, you moved over to the next valley. As long as no one was in that valley, you could use the land. We had unfettered use of the land, no restrictions whatsoever, no titles, no boundaries, uh, recognized use areas by other families, <clears throat> but other than that, there was no conflict. Conflict started to come with statehood. If you look at the land selection patterns in Alaska and early statehood selections, uh, they selected land in the Kenai, they selected land between Anchorage and Palmer, between Palmer and, and uh, Talkeetna and between Palmer and, and Glen Allen, and the state of Alaska was treated differently than any other state territory as it, when it became a state. Most western states got one in 16 or one in 32 sections of land. Alaska got almost one-third of the land mass, and the reasoning was, I think, that there was strong opposition to Alaska becoming a state because we couldn't support local government. The federal government wanted to the strong movement to cut Alaska loose uh, be to become a protectorate. Uh, 
like the Philippines, <coughs> uh, the Commonwealth with their own government, because they were tired of supporting government in Alaska. But as a compromise, they gave Alaska one-third of the land mass, and what Alaska did with that was they were selling land to, to run government. You drive up the highway, and every 300 feet you saw a little uh, 8 by 10 sign that gave you a number on this lot, and you could buy land from the state of Alaska for 10% down, 10 years, no interest. And in that they were converting land ownership to money to run government. So then we started getting getting uh, conflicts on the use of land. Uh, the state sold uh, land at the New York World's Fair as uh, <coughs> wilderness sites. <coughs> and uh, the people in Tenacross and Dot Lake complained because the state of Alaska went through the graveyard and surveyed five-acre lots. So those kinds of concerns was running through the rural community about uh, not knowing how to deal with this encroachment. So that was part of the impetus for statewide movement. In 1966, Bob Bennett was area director in Juneau for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. He got tapped to become uh, commissioner in Washington, D.C. In January of 1966, <clears throat> During his confirmation hearings, he was before the Senate Interior Committee. Scoop Jackson was in the chair, and he said to Bob Bennett, you're an Indian, Bob Bennett's Oneida, and he said, you're an Indian, what would you do different to solve the, quote, Indian problem? And the Indian problem was for the past hundred years, uh, Congress heard testimony about the uh, uh, poor health statistics about the high unemployment, the bad education, the poor housing, and just the general uh, rundown condition of the Indian community on the reservations mainly. <clears throat> said, what would you do different? So Bennett started to give him an answer, and Jackson stopped him and said, no, don't shoot from the hip. He said, come back in 90 days with a plan for how you're going to break the cycle. <clears throat> In 90 days, Bennett issued his report, and I read it in April, Bennett's 90-day report scoping the Indian problem. He devoted about one page to Alaska, and in that report on Alaska, he said the Bureau of Indian Affairs was drawing up a final solution to the land problem in Alaska, and he quoted the laws that, that were behind his authority to do so. Uh, Statehood Act, uh, IRAs, or reorganization, a, whole, a number of acts. <clears throat> and and uh, I read that and set it aside, reread it and set it aside, and finally said if the BIA is going to draw up a final solution, if we have any rights in land, we ought to have something to say about it. So in July of 1966, or of April, I, I wrote a letter uh, suggesting a statewide meeting. You wrote a letter to Bennett? Or? No, I wrote a letter to people around the state that I heard of. Some of them I didn't know. Uh, I knew Tony Lewis in Bethel. I wrote to him. Uh, Jerome Trigg in Nome. Uh, Evan Hobson in Barrow. A&B President. Uh, Copper River. 
Oscar Craig. Oscar Craig. And so I figured we'd sit down with about 14 people and talk about this thing. <clears throat> I'm sorry, this would have been this letter would have been written in, in April of 66 or the summer of 66? Well, I, if I remember right, I wrote it the, somewhere between April and July. Because in July, I think it was July, Howard Rock got a copy of the letter. Now, did, did you just on your own, or did you discuss this with Nick? Did the two of you guys sit down, or how did all that come about? You know, I'm not sure, but... Uh, as I remembered, I, I wrote the letter, but I, I don't know how active Nick was at the time. He was getting right. sick. He was getting sick in the, about that time. As a matter of fact, he might have been in the hospital. Okay. And... Uh, so Hard Rock started a headline at statewide meeting call, and he ran his big headlines and pushed about why we should have a statewide meeting. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> we started getting a lot of interest in it. At that point, Albert Kaloa, with Stanley McCutcheon, who was a brilliant organizer, became interested in it. And it ended up that Tionic put a lot of money, I don't know how much money, into the meeting, but they chartered airplanes, they picked, people would sign in the hotels, and they left, they signed the bills, and Tionic picked up that meeting. All of a sudden, our meeting of 14 people, we had uh, 300 people at the first meeting. Right, well, let me back up a, a second. Then. When, when did you first uh, <clears throat> bump in, for lack of a more artful term, uh, bump into Albert Kaloa, and how did, and were they... Did they just show up after reading about about the tundra in the Tundra Times about your interest in the meeting, or did, did you have dealings with? No, I, I think they called after they saw the stories and said, you know, how can we help? Yeah. And they became uh, they helped organize it. They helped write the letters. They helped they helped me as president of CINA at the time <clears throat> put the whole thing together. The Tionic owned the building that we held the first meeting in. Right, that'd be across the street over here. Audio cam. It was an audio cam building at the time. It's now Martin Victor Furs right. across from across from uh, McDonald's, right. <clears throat> the second floor. And uh, what were your impressions of Albert Kaloa? Was he? You know? Albert was one of those dynamic guys. He was a strong voice and uh, a forceful personality. Did did he seem to have a sense? Um, obviously, you and Nick had a sense of this land thing and. And, and Albert must have also, otherwise he wouldn't have used Tionic's money, but did he ever talk to you about what he thought should go on with respect to land or No, his, his, his uh, my limited contact with him was that they wanted to help. They, they were concerned. They felt that because they had uh, come into 11 or $12 million, <clears throat> that they could spend part of that money to help the rest of Alaska get some kind of equity and uh, he had uh, <clears throat> we didn't really talk about what his vision was or what it should be or look like or anything else okay well then they they uh, approached you and said they'd like to help um, in terms of the you were mentioning about how people signed their hotel checks and Tionic later picked it up um, did, did Tionic pick up airfare and stuff as well did, did airfares uh, I'm told they chartered airplanes how brought people in? How did it did it work? Did did people that wanted to come write to you guys, and then Tionic got in touch with them, or was Tionic running its own operation in terms of bringing people in? Do you have any? 
I'm not sure. <clears throat> I, I think they chartered. Uh, it was pretty well known that Townick was done doing some. Uh, well, they did some. They let it be known that they were willing to help, and people contacted them directly, and and I helped. They helped directly. <clears throat> so I have no idea how much they spent or how many people they helped, but I know that it did go on. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so I guess that takes us up to that meeting in, in October of 66. What, uh, how many people ended up showing up? 300, about 300 people signed in. And at that meeting, Nick Gray got off his deathbed, it turned out, came out of the hospital, came down to the meeting, addressed the group, and went back and he told his niece, Nick, uh, uh, Clinton Gray's daughter, Nancy, that uh, when she took him back to the hospital, he said, now I can die in peace, because he saw the first statewide meeting. And, and three days later he did die, or a week later he died. <clears throat> at, at that statewide meeting, first meeting, we uh, put out a number of uh, committees to look at issues. One of the committees we sent out was a land committee. We appointed as chairman of that land committee a young student, Willie Hensley. And uh, with the help of uh, Washington, D.C. Indian lawyer Marvin Sanowski, <clears throat> they came back with a position paper on land. Okay, well, let me back up in a couple of, of directions there. One was Sanowski attended the 66 meeting? Yes. Was, did he, was he up there on his own, or did he have he was a at client? The inv invitation of uh, Tionic, I'm sure. Okay, and then I guess the, the next obvious question is, uh, since the two of you were to, to become uh, fairly important partners in all of this in the early years, when did you first bump into Willie? Was this the first time you met him, or had you known Willie in the past? Or No, I didn't know Willie. It was uh, probably about that time. I'm not sure what the events now. Ex when it happened, but they around that time they had a the, the uh, federal land law review commission, mm -hmm. public land review commission, right. came through town. <clears throat> I think it was before this. That's probably why I met Willie. Willie was a student. He he went and testified, and I watched, and I was I was real impressed with uh, with his knowledge about land and his uh, way with dealing with the committee. So that's probably why he ended up on the lands committee. <clears throat> and later on, he wrote a paper about what rights do we have in land as a constitutional law student with a young professor named uh, Rabinowitz, right? Rabinowitz, J. Rabinowitz. <clears throat> so anyway, this, this position paper, we sent out, after the convention, we sent out these resolutions and papers and and we decided that we wanted this introduced into Congress as a resolution of land, the land issue in Alaska. So <clears throat> I sent these uh, resolutions out to, to Bartlett and Greening and Ralph Rivers. Well, let me actually let me stop you there. Did at the '66 meeting there were obviously an awful lot of <clears throat> of um, Native leaders from from the whole state there, and you're into an election year. I mean, you're into an election a month after the meeting. Where were the, the politicians show up and discuss land at all at the '66 meeting, or did they not even understand? They didn't show up to, to discuss land, but they just they showed up 
And the, the meeting in October was not by accident. We purposely set it before an election. <coughs> and uh, and we had uh, a lot of people come and take delegates to lunch and dinners. And, uh, Mike Gavell threw a dinner. Uh, other candidates had dinners, <coughs> luncheons, group meetings, caucuses. It was a real active time. Anchorage Times, I called the meeting to order at 10 o'clock in the morning. When I went out to lunch, we were just organizing. No real issues yet. When I went out to lunch, I picked up the Anchorage Times, and the headlines was Native Split. They immediately tried to drive a wedge amongst the delegates. And the story had to be pre-written because they go to print at 10 in the morning. Right, right. And uh, so they they were not real helpful to our cause in the beginning. <clears throat> well, so as the result of, of, of that meeting, there was a um, an actual bill that, that the group endorsed. Right, um, okay. That, when we sent that bill out, nothing happened. In April of 67, I sent telegrams to Greening, Bartlett, and Rivers, and, and being young and brash, I said, I demand that you introduce this. Well, let me, let me back, back up a second. Wasn't there, um, in terms of AFN getting started, um, didn't you guys get together, or somebody got together in, in Fairbanks or somewhere in like January or February? And what, what happened up there? <coughs> We had a meeting at the, uh, what's now the Westmark, but it was a travel, travel, not the travel lodge, it was, a, it was Hickel's establishment mm -hmm. over on 7th or 8th. Right. <clears throat> and uh, we had, uh, we're still in, from the meeting, the purpose of the meeting was to talk about bylaws to start a statewide meeting. Because in October we agreed to have a meeting we set a meeting in January to talk about bylaws and, and getting organized. <clears throat> uh, in October, we we, we sent uh, we made uh, Floyd Lekanoff chairman of the bylaws committee to do that, and uh, we, the bylaws weren't ready in January. But anyway, we had a kind of a hot meeting in Fairbanks. How many people showed up in Fairbanks? Well, there <clears throat> must have been uh, <clears throat> there must have been 150 or so. Did did uh, Tyonic help put out the again. bill again in terms of helping people with and travel some, and yeah. Right. Um, at that meeting, we had uh, Bob Hammond, who was a former kind of self-styled Indian specialist. He was there and gave a report. Not not Hammond. It was uh, Arnold, not Bob Arnold. Uh, I forget his first name. Do you know the name Arnold? Wait, not old, not W. C. Arnold. W. C. Arnold. Oh, the old, the old the fish, old fish guy? the old fish, right. fish lawyer right. from Seattle. <clears throat> but he he somehow got involved in this thing, and he was there. And then the Attorney General for the State of Alaska, Donald Burr, was right. there. <clears throat> and we had a real confrontation, uh, exciting confrontations between uh, Don Burr and Stanley McCutcheon. And uh, <clears throat> about native lands, that was becoming the real hot issue. 
about state land selections or native rights and who had priority and whatnot. So uh, it was after that, I think, that they hired Edgar Boyko as a specialist to, uh, to deal with this. So Boyko was not up there for this January meeting? I don't think so. I think he came in after that. And Burr was, at least the paper I've read, indicates that he was sort of a hardliner, right? He didn't oh, he think that natives had many rights to anything. That's right. Very hardline. Was, was that Hickel's view as well? Did anybody have any contact with Hickel at that point? Or? Well, February 7th, after that meeting, Hickel uh, got on radio 6 o'clock at night and addressed statewide address. And he's, uh, if I remember right, I'd like to get a copy of this, but my memory said that uh, the speech went something like, just because someone's grandfather chased a moose across the tundra doesn't give him any more rights in land than anybody else. Just because there's old piling stuck out in the basin where it doesn't mean people have rights, uh, many more rights than anybody else. that we were all American citizens and had equal access to land and, and we all could file for homesteads and never mind the special rights. Uh, <clears throat> Boyko took the line that uh, it was punitive on the part of the Democratic administration to uh, punish Alaska for electing the Republican governor, that the intent was to drive Alaska into bankruptcy. As a matter of fact, you would say Alaska is going to be bankrupt in a few years because of the land freeze. Right, and I guess to sort we're of back ahead, right? To go out to back? No, actually, we're not because, uh, at least as I've been able to discern it, and it was interesting talking with Stewart about it, that there are actually a whole variety of land freezes. That the the one that Boyko was talking about was that um, when the BIA started helping the villages protest state selections. Um, Every state selection that was covered by a native protest by 63, 64, 65 was just going into a filing drawer in the Department of the Interior, and there were no uh, selections being processed at that point. And that going back to your original point about how the state was living off the selling land, Boyko <laughs> had, a, had, a certain, uh, had a certain validity to his opinion, which of course was exactly what Udall and these people were attempting to to do to sort of bludgeon them into coming to their senses a little bit, but so I well, that's true. And, and uh, Scoop Jackson was part of that too because <clears throat> during the Hickel nomination hearings, he he said he wanted, in his words, hold everybody's toes right. to the fire. Right, right. Which was actually a, a year or so later. Later, obviously. Right. But anyway, so in February, um, Hickel comes out with this "Don't give him an inch" speech, and Boyko basically says the states on his way to ruin. So we, we were getting organized about, well, in April, that <coughs> the, uh, our, our position paper that Willie Hensley chaired on the committee became uh, the first one to respond was Bartlett. Immediately he sent back a telegram saying, I'm glad to introduce this bill. It became Senate Bill 2020. Uh, we were pretty happy, but none of us had any experience. It got put into Judiciary Committee where it died. Okay. About two weeks later, Greening sent a telegram said, I'm happy to join my colleague and add his name to the bill. It wasn't for a month or so that the House uh, 
signed on, introduced the bill. But that was the first bill, Senate Bill 2020. That bill would have done something, nothing, something that hasn't been done in courts, and that is to uh, pay for, no, that would have been to award title to land if we could prove use and occupancy on it. We think we could have proved use and occupancy on all of Alaska, and we could have ended up owning all of Alaska. All right, well, let me let me stop you there for a second. Is is I understand the reports that uh, that Howard wrote about the October '66 meeting that there was sort of a, a fight about that. That that McCutcheon had come in and suggested to to that to the group that the approach that should be taken was a court of claims bill that just would have given out money and that there was another faction that eventually prevailed that, that led to, to S-2020 that that said, no, if we're going to do this, the Court of Claims, in addition to giving out money, should also be ordered by Congress to give out land. And that was obviously a big change because the Court of Claims does not have jurisdiction to give out land unless Congress changed the rule. But do you remember if there was any fight about that, or was it always just we want land from the very beginning? I, I don't remember that. <coughs> being a big issue because the overwhelming feeling was we wanted title to land. <coughs> so there may have been advice contrary to that, but the delegates wanted title to land. And okay. it was never really an arguable point. Okay. okay. So <coughs> so we're in um, in March or April of yes, April of sixty uh, seven and, and S twenty twenty is introduced. Um, at, at that point in time, what are you doing? Are you, are you working at AFN? Or do you have a, a normal job? Of what, what's happening in the spring of 67? Well, I, was, I was still uh, still employed, but uh, it was after that that I decided that this, there were too many things happening and we needed uh, uh, more attention, daily attention to the matter. So. I quit my job and... Uh, what, what had you been doing? <clears throat> at that point, I was uh, working for ASCAP. ASCAP? Alaska State Community Action Program, oh, okay. which was a forerunner of rural cap. Right. And uh, <clears throat> so I took on AFN. We had $9 in the bank. I. Uh, this would have been in April of 67? I, I don't remember the exact date. It was spring of... Spring or summer of '67. Um, well, I got behind three months behind on my house payments. I got behind on my car payments. My family literally ate beans for a week one time because we just didn't have the money. AFN was broke, but I still, I didn't. Uh, I felt that it had to be done. If I didn't do it, nobody could afford to take the time, and there was no way to get to keep the organization going. So I, I made the uh, sacrifice to do that. <clears throat> how was AFN, this is obviously before the Tionic loan, how was AFN raising money? We did, we put out membership applications, mimeograph applications, and scattered them around the state. There were $2 membership fees. We tried to get everybody, every village in Alaska, every individual, to join AFN that way. And then we, we set a quota system for, that was individual membership. Then we set a quota system for organizations, Fairbanks Native Association, Cusco Quinn Valley, and we, that uh, they had to donate 
five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, you know, <clears throat> which there was a lot of opposition to that because they were all having money problems their own. They didn't want to supply a central administration, but some of them did and some of them didn't. But it was always a, a problem. Then we we uh, <clears throat> we got some money from the Ford Foundation, and uh, but that got cut off right away because in '68 they changed the tax laws. But the activism and civil rights in '64 and '65 and '66, uh, foundations were supporting civil rights drives and voter registration drives in the South mainly. Congress uh, changed the tax laws that forced them or said that they could not support political activity. And because AFN was involved in politics, Ford could not give AFN money anymore. Right, now how did how did you get in, in contact with Ford to begin with? Did they was there somebody up here that put that together or did they contact you because this was obviously an exciting new area? Yeah. I think you have to verify this, but if I remember right, <coughs> our contact, our initial contact came through Vic Fisher, hmm. who was at the university, ISER at the time, ISCGR. He put us in contact with the people, and the initial money came from Ford Foundation to ISCGR, and they supported us clerically and with <coughs> expenses for uh, telephone and postage. So you weren't getting your but salary? salary. Okay. They, they supported some of our activities. <coughs> And then after some experience, they gave us a one grant directly, and then the laws changed. And in 69, we spun off from AFN, AFN Charitable Trust, which we later became Alaska Native Foundation, because it was a 501c3, and then Ford Foundation put money directly into that. But that was information that was not political. Right, right. Well, that was the same time that the Sierra Club was getting in all that trouble for exactly the same kind of kind of situation. Well, so then going back into the to the spring of 67, uh, S2020 has been introduced. Um, you've um, quit your job and, and are working without salary at AFN. These fundraising activities are going on. Uh, I guess the Ford Foundation is starting to get involved a little bit at that point with respect. Churches. We got $10,000 from the Methodist Church. Uh, Synod, uh, I think it came through the intersection. Just in case uh, that didn't get picked up, we were just talking uh, about uh, the fact that uh, $10,000 had come from the Methodist Church, and I guess you were saying probably through Fred McGinnis, who obviously was uh, at that. Was he at a hey, uh, MU yeah, at that time? Right. Okay. So there were a number of uh, organizations that started to come and help us, but we we were getting noticed because we were in the newspaper every day, arguing our position and <clears throat> and causing some discomfort to state government and others. So people noticed and wanted us to help us. Well, now um, wasn't it sometime in? Uh, I know that. Uh, while all these activities are going on in, in Alaska, um, finally, after all these years, the Interior Department's rumbling to life back east. And I know that I think it was in uh, in May or June of '67 that they finally released their first version of, of a Claims Act bill. Um, did you have any involvement with with the Interior Department at that point? And 
in developing that bill or any contact with them? Well, the only contact was with uh, Udall, and uh, he was <clears throat> he would come up here to our meetings and fly in for different on different at different times during the year and float uh, float some balloons that we always shot at. I remember one time he he proposed a ten percent offshore. Right. Well, that that was. Well, we'll get to that in a in a bit. That was he showed up at the at the fall '67 um, AFN convention in the Tiger yeah. Times banquet, and that's when he floated uh, that idea that got him in a fair amount of trouble, uh, ultimately. But in the in the spring of '67, uh, you guys were not involved. No. Then, in, in terms of uh, no. having any input into the department's thinking at that point. No. Okay. Um, well then, I guess uh, then he, that takes us through um, the summer of '67, and I guess just to at that point, by the summer of '67, AFN has been organized. You're on staff pretty much at that point. There has been an AFN bill introduced, um, and one version went immediately to a certain death in the Judiciary Committee, and then I guess another bill was reintroduced by Bartlett later that ended up yeah. on the Interior Committee. And Udall, I'm sorry, yeah, Udall entered, sent his bill up to the Hill, which was called S. 1964. And uh, it's interesting, I found in Udall's papers a telegram from you um, to Udall basically saying that that the department's bill was an insult to <laughs> everyone's intelligence. intelligence. I don't know if you remember I that. Um, what was your guys' reaction when you saw Udall's bill? Well, first of all, the land wasn't big enough. You know, there wasn't enough money. <clears throat> when they proposed $180 million, I, I remember I said, Telegram said, uh, if the United States think that's thinks that Alaska is only worth $180 million, we would guarantee the United States government $180 million if they would get out of Alaska. Right, I've I've seen that one too. Right, where you offered to buy the whole place for 180 million. Right, right. Um, <clears throat> Which I never got a response to. Well, so then um, that's sort of where we are in the summer of '67, and um, Hickel's still taking, I guess, at that point, a hard line. Um, are there really any other things going on before we get to the fall with Udall coming up and the Hickel task force and all that? No, there were th <clears throat> things were happening pretty fast. There were a lot of things going on that wasn't apparent. I think they were gearing up to appoint the Federal Land Use Planning Commission, which eventually had a bill. Uh, the groundwork was laid for this rural Alaska task force, which sure. Hickel funded. You know, all these things were just beginning to come into action. Okay. Well, then that that does take us then into into the next. Uh, the, the fall '67 AFN um, convention, and where was that? Was that held in Anchorage, or was that in Fairbanks? Or? I remember it was in Fairbanks. Had and also, I guess, when did when did the hundred thousand bucks from Tionic arrive? Was that in '67, or was it later than that? That came in late '67 because it, it came before Hickel became Secretary of Interior. Okay, and how did? How did that work? Did did Albert Kaloa and and people? Um, well, actually, Kaloa at that point was obviously had died. Um, um, how did uh, that loan get arranged? Was that their idea? Did you guys go to Tionic or? 
I went to Taunik. Uh, they came here. We had a number of meetings. FN, the board met. Uh, and it wasn't, uh, if I remember right, we were drawing it down at $25,000. And I made that $100,000 last uh, almost two years uh, to keep us going. Very, very careful with how we spent money. But but AFN went to Tyonic then and suggested that... And their attorneys, of course, wouldn't, it wouldn't happen without support of their attorneys. Oh, which was McCutcheon, basically? McCutcheon, and Grohl. Right. Um, did, one of the things I've been interested in, and I've, I've been trying to get a hold of Emil McCord about it, um, is that when Tyonic got the $12 million, technically it was still in the hands of the BIA. And... And I've always been curious as to how, I mean, we don't think anything about it now, because ever since the Claims Act, the Native community has controlled its own money. You don't have to ask anybody for, which is an argument to be made that that wasn't necessarily always a good thing. But but in any event, you know, back then, the BIA had control of Tyonic's money, and Tyonic was making some pretty radical decisions in, in those days of, you know, paying all these plane tickets to no particularly good end. And, and a hundred thousand bucks is a lot of money today, and it was a, a whole lot of money right. in '67. And were there? Do you recall were there problems with the bureau in terms of of getting the hundred thousand bucks, or it just the bureau stayed out of it? Or I think my feeling at the time was that they they really didn't approve of it, but they didn't want to say no. <clears throat> so they did have to have permission to do a lot of things. And my feeling at the time also was that. They were uh, the village was investing their money to get it out of the control of BIA. If they could get it all invested, then the cash flow coming coming back from it was uh, was their own money. Okay. Stop for just oh, sure. So, um, <clears throat> so then, by the '67 um, AFN convention, and this hundred thousand dollar loan obviously would have been. Um, well, actually, yeah, it would have been in 67. Okay. Um, well, then I guess a couple things happened at the 67 convention. One is is Udall showed up. And what were your impressions? Was that the first time that you'd had any dealings with Stewart, or had he been up to deal with you folks before? No. Well, yeah, he came, he came up once, but I don't remember exactly why. I remember him coming into the airport and I met the plane. Ted Stevens was there, but I think he was a solicitor or attorney for one of the oil companies. I'm not sure. Maybe private practice, but I remember him being there. Uh, this, would have we, been, this would have been before the 67 meeting. Yeah. Okay. And then we had contact with him by telephone on the these mini land freezes. He there was two two land freezes. One was he would withdraw land around villages to protect the villages. And then before he left office he uh, he withdrew all of Alaska right. except the pipeline. Right. And so we were in contact with him and we were trying to encourage him, we being McCutcheon and uh, and uh, through AFN uh, saying, look, if you've got authority to withdraw land around village, you've got authority to withdraw it all, which he finally became convinced that he had the power to do it, and did. Right, but, but were those kinds of conversations going on with him 
67, or was this after into 68 before all that? Well, they were went on for quite a while, so, uh, yeah, we're, yeah, 68. We've been probably more in 68. Okay. Okay. Well, he came up to the 67 convention, right. and uh, did you guys, I assume you guys probably must have met with him privately at, at that point, or do you recall what his attitude was about Native claims in 67? Well, he always thought that there had to be a settlement to clear title to cloud off the title to land, because we were arguing that the government could not give good title to land without, because there was a cloud on the title. And he was concerned about it, uh, but no one knew exactly what to do about it. Okay, well, what, um, <clears throat> um, it was in 60, it was at that visit in 67, which is when he floated this idea about using OCS revenues to pay for the Claims Act. Uh, what was your guys' thought about that at the time? Did that seem like a good idea? Or? It was too risky. There, there was no known oil except for Cook Inlet off of Alaska, so we weren't going to roll the dice our whole future on. I'm sorry. I'll be right We weren't going to roll the future of the Indian community on the chance of getting 10% of offshore revenue. When we say 10%, I'm not sure if that was 10% of the federal share which is 12.5%, so what we're talking about is 1.25%. And so his proposal was that you wouldn't get any set amount of money, you'd just get a percentage, and if there was no revenues generated, we'll get nothing. you get nothing. And I think the first proposals was for uh, um, 600,000 acres or something ridiculous. Yeah, well, we it was, considered a small amount of land. Right, it was, I was, as near as I've been able to figure it out, that was Greening's influence on the whole yeah. thing. That it was about fifty thousand acres of village, which, if you did the math, came out to be about a million acres total, million two, um, which in retrospect looks uh, preposterous, but uh, and I guess probably looked preposterous at the time. Right? Um, well, in addition to Udall coming up, um, it was also that sixty-seven AFN meeting when. Uh, when Hickel sort of changed his tune a little bit, um, which led to organizing the Hickel Task Force. Um, had you had, <coughs> what was your, your dealings like with Hickel and, and Boyko in 67? Was, did, did they come in one day and just say, well, maybe we ought to try and cut a deal and stop all this hardline stuff, or how did all that work? Yeah, they, they wanted to deal with somebody, but there was nobody to deal with. Uh, AFN was trying to get organized, uh, well, we were organized on paper, but we didn't have money to bring people together. The organizations couldn't pay for their own people. A lot of guys paid their own way to meetings, took time off from their work, paid their own hotel bills, which they never, ever recovered. But Hickel's problem was that he didn't, he didn't have anybody to talk to. He could talk, he could call me as AFN, but I'd have to say, well, I have to wait till I get a board meeting so you can talk about it. When's the next board meeting? Well, I don't know. It depends on when we can get money. <clears throat> so it was, uh, it was uh, mostly to benefit the state so they could deal with us that they put this task force together called Rural Task Force so that they could pay way for people to meet and, and the state of Alaska could deal with a unified group. Right. Now, we, I assume you were a member of the 
task force? I was chairman. Okay. And how, where did, uh, did you guys meet in Anchorage? Did you meet in Juneau? What? We met both places. And, and obviously the major um, accomplishment of the task force was, was writing a bill. Um, what was that I'd like to talk about in some detail in a second, but um, how did all that work? Did, was it just, a, I know that Oiko was there, you guys were all there, that you all sent a guy named Bob Vaughn up um, to participate. Um, what went on? Did people just sit and talk, or who drafted the bill, and how did all that work? Well, McCutcheon was deeply involved, and he was getting legal advice from uh, outside uh, experienced Indian law lawyers. Um, our position was <clears throat> we knew we weren't going to get all of Alaska, as 2020 might have given us. Uh, we, we argued amongst ourselves about well, what would be a reasonable uh, combination of land and money we eventually ended up, our first position was 80 million acres. And uh, we were arguing one day about 10% of, of the royalty. And uh, we were up in the Bureau of Indian Affairs office here in Taunik building on 16th and C. <clears throat> and uh, the 10% was scary because it sounded like an awful lot of money. I was sitting in there, I was chairing the meeting, I was sitting there and I was, wait, wait a minute, We're, I don't want to use 10% because immediately it raises a red flag, it's too much money. So I said, why don't we just go for 2% of the value of whatever the mineral is, oil or minerals or whatever. And, and I said, we'd end up with more money, in fact, because uh, it's 2% of the gross and not 1.25. 10% or 12.5%. And uh, so we went for that. Partly as a PR, mostly as a PR thing. So 2% doesn't sound as scary. A benefit of going to 2% was that we got more money without raising as, uh, as many flags. So so we ended up on 2%. Okay, well, now one of the other things is that uh, you ended up with 40 million acres in that bill. How did that happen? During uh, during our negotiations with the state, we we after testifying, <clears throat> we knew Congress was reluctant to uh, pass a law in opposition to a governor of the state. They didn't. They were real reluctant to do that. So we decided we needed to go arm in arm with state administration to Congress and say, "Here's a bill that we can agree on, and get the state on our side." to support the bill and it would be would be beneficial to us to have the governor go in and say yes and so in the meetings with <coughs> with Hickel we uh, we offered to go to uh, just very directly said if you'll we'll go to 40 million acres if you'll support our position and he agreed to it did he was there a lot of did he do that easily did he well, was there bluster before he did that no, or? He, Publicly, he did it, or in our meeting, he did it easily, but but, but it had been prearranged by Cliff Grohl. And Cliff Grohl was very close to Hickel. He was also attorney for Tionic and for AFN. And so he, he floated the idea with Hickel first, and he came back and said, if you bring it up, Hickel will agree to it. So 
So we proposed it, and Hickel agreed to it graciously, and uh, I'm sure not too happy about it. Mm. But there, there's a follow-on story to that. We got down to D.C. to testify, and uh, uh, Tom is Commissioner of Natural Revenue. Oh, uh, Tom Kelly. Tom Kelly. We met with Tom Kelly, and... Uh, forget who the Attorney General was at the time, and they said there's no way the government's going to support 40 million acres of land. This was after Hickel had after supported Hickel. 49 yeah. acres of land? About six months after. <clears throat> that would have been the, the hearings that were in the summer of 68. So we were in, uh, <clears throat> I think it was the Sheraton Hotel, one of the big hotels in D.C., up in the room, and from 7 o'clock to about 11 o'clock, we had a very heated meeting with these lieutenants of the government, and they were saying he'd get killed publicly, he can't support it, there's no way he can agree to do that, and we kept saying, look, we compromised, we went from 40 million to 80, from 80 million to 40 million based on his promise, we can't back out now, we're going in tomorrow morning to testify, we need his support, uh, we're going to go back to 80 million, there are all kinds of things that... Uh, wasn't a very pleasant meeting. We say seven to eleven at night or in the at morning. Night. Right. And finally, I think it was Cliff Grove went privately down the hallway to Hickel's room and talked to Hickel and said, "Look, this kind we're going to have a fist fight over there if this isn't solved." So uh, he came back and and they said, well, "Hickel will talk to us." So we walked in the room <coughs> and. Uh, Willie and John Borbridge and others were there, Evan probably, and uh, he said, what's the problem, boys? He said, uh, well, Wally, you promised to support 40 million acres of land, and these guys are telling us that you're not going to testify to that tomorrow morning. And he said, uh, real quiet, he said, did I promise you guys I'd support 40 million acres? And he said, yes, Governor, you did. And he said, well, if I promise that, that's what I'll do. The meeting was over. He diffused it real easy. Hmm. Was Kelly and these people in the room? They were there. The lieutenants were there. They did their best, you know, I'm sure. Tried to. Uh, <clears throat> but the, the next morning, we were shocked because when he testified, he put a caveat on it. He put conditions on 40 million acres, which we've never discussed. In his testimony, he said, I'll support 40 million acres of land for Native people provided. Some of that land comes out of federal reserves, uh, forest forest uh, lands, out of park lands, you know, military reserves, whatever federal withdrawals there were, that uh, some of that land came out of that. So what that would do is give the state of Alaska more flexibility in selecting lands. Mm -hmm. So we weren't real happy about that, but at least he was on record <coughs> as supporting 40 million acres. Right, well, <coughs> let me back up a second on that. Um, one of the other people that jumped ship um, I've read the press accounts of, of the task force work, and uh, at the final meeting, when this was announced to the press that Governor Hickel had, had agreed to 40 million acres, it's been like in January or February of, of uh, 68, right before, I guess, Scoop Jackson came up in like February of 68, so it was right before that, that, that Bob Vaughn, who was representing uh, Udall at that point, told the press that he thought that that the department could support both a 40 million acre bill and 
this two uh, percent business that you were talking about, and when 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 the whole process got to that summer of '68 hearing cycle that you, you just described in terms of Hickel's behavior, the department went in and, and itself disowned 40 million acres. Um, did were you guys disappointed in that? Do you recall any of? Yeah, they we met with the people from the solicitor's office, and they were very much against it there. And we decided that we're never going to convince the bureaucrats. So we decided uh, we needed, that's why we needed state government, that that <coughs> Congress would listen to the state of Alaska and to the native people rather than to the Department of Interior. So it was a deliberate choice on our part to, to uh, try to sidestep that. Right. What I guess, I guess my my question was was more directed toward sort of Vaughn's participation in the task force. Did did you guys think that that Vaughn had authority from from Udall and the department to agree to to the terms of the task force bill to begin with, or did he always indicate that he was just there as an observer and and there were no commitments? I don't remember exactly, but uh, <clears throat> it's my impression that. He was always there as kind of an, as a, as an observer, mm. not with authority to deal and negotiate. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Um, well, the other thing about the task force bill that um, I have become quite interested in um, is that the, the task force bill was important for a number of reasons in terms of the ultimate settlement. I mean, it was it was it abandoned the court, the court of claims process of adjudicating individual village use and occupancy and just set a, a process for for handing out land. Um, it had 40 million acres in it. Um, I mean, it looked in a number of ways it was quite similar to to the to the structure of, of what became the final settlement. And, and it is also the first place that I've been able to find in all of these bills uh, where the concept of using the state chartered corporation to be the vehicle to to um, handle the land and the money appears. And I was wondering, um, how did all that happen? And was that debated inside the task force? And obviously, it was an important decision in retrospect. I think there are two things that bear on that. One was, initially, we proposed, uh, <clears throat> our concern was the village lifestyle. Those of us that made the transition to the cities did it of our free choice. Uh, obviously, the villagers were the ones that needed the help. So we proposed 95% of the money go into a statewide structure with one lawyer and one planning group and one you know, to investment theory to, to help the villagers. Uh, that was opposed. This monolithic structure was opposed by our own delegation. So we abandoned that. You say your own delegation, you mean... Uh, Stevens, namely. Okay. Well, that was... Later. Later. I mean, it... <clears throat> The other, the other thing that came was uh, we looked at uh, the reservation system was not working. A hundred years of history on the reservation system, conditions hadn't changed. They were still economically way behind. And in a lot of ways, this land claim thing is a social experiment, I think. So anyway, <clears throat> the reservation system wasn't working. Under Eisenhower, they tried something called uh, termination. Uh, later, 
in the early 60s, they tried something called relocation. And Jackson was part of the deal of termination. He, he was involved with the termination of the Menominee and involved with the termination of the Klamath. And both those experiments, neither one worked. So he, he was well aware of the Indian law and the impact, and, and, but he was looking for some, some way to deal with this issue, to end this dependence upon government, uh, number one, and number two, to break the cycle of poverty and all the ills that go with it. So when, when we were looking for a way out, the only thing we could come up with was we wanted to control our own destiny. We looked at the BIA controlling all the canneries in southeast Alaska with their loans and management and strings attached. And we used to say, we don't want some GS7 making our decisions. If we're going to fail, we're going to do it on our own. So we wanted fee title lands and control of our own money. And the only way we could see of doing that was put it into a corporation. And they went for it. All right, so... so um I mean that was discussed inside the the Hickel Task Force in terms of that <clears throat> that the kinds of concerns that you just described. Yeah. Okay, because I've talked to Barry Jackson, and he obviously was one of the the main people that actually did the typing on that right. bill, and uh, and he couldn't really remember a whole lot of of discussion about it, but he also couldn't remember whether what he could remember either. You know, so I mean, it's obviously <coughs> been a long time ago, but right. it certainly seems that if that was a in retrospect, a very important decision to uh, to use the state corporation. Um, well, let me. Uh, <clears throat> I guess one of the other things I haven't asked about is when did you guys first start going to Washington D.C.? Um, obviously, you had never you had lived in Washington D.C. or close to that area in the Navy, in the Navy right? And I guess you got into school back east somewhere there. Um, when was the first uh, time as an AFN representative that, that you guys went back? Uh, it was in the spring of, uh, it was shortly after Hickel was governor. So like the spring of 67 then? Yeah. When, when uh, there was a meeting between governor and Udall, I got wind of the meeting. <coughs> Um, I called a I called a meeting here in town of local using CINA because AFN didn't have any money. So we said this meeting is going on. It's important that we go back there. I called Bob Bartlett and he said that it was in his office at the request of Hickel. He said, uh, I said, we're concerned if you're going to talk about land, that you know, we'd like to be part of it. He said, just come on back, and when you get back, come on in. So I said, we'll get there about 2 o'clock. He said, just walk in. So <clears throat> so on a Sunday, we, we held a meeting. We raised uh, $1,200. We explained the situation to about 40 people. The first woman stood up, Alice Brown, and said, here's my check for $200. Larry Skolkoff stood up right behind her and said, here's 200 more. And then people said, well, here's 50, here's 10, here's 100, you know, whatever people could. It was direct cash. <coughs> Willie Hensley and I got on a plane and flew back, flew all night, 
knocked on the door of Bartlett's office, and uh, he opened the door and we walked in. The meeting was in progress, and people were shocked. I don't know that. It seemed to me they, they didn't know we were coming. Who is who is there at the meeting? Uh, Udall and uh, Hickel were the main ones, and, and Bartlett, was, and a couple of staff members. Was Greening there? Or? Greening was not there. Sure. Well, what happened? To, uh, what was the purpose of the meeting? What? Well, I think they were trying to set parameters for a settlement, or what, find out what the BIA had in mind, and the state could agree with it, and they'd pass a law, you know, without consulting us. Is my impression of it. So the meeting kind of busted up. It became kind of meaningless. So there was no no real discussion after we arrived. So then we were back into the process of of uh, all the things we did. Right. Well, did did you guys then just turn around and fly home, or did you go meet with Udall separately, or with Bartlett separately after that? Or uh, well, we met we met with Bartlett. I don't think we met with Udall, and we weren't really in the. <coughs> mode of making rounds of Congress yet, so there was a quick meeting we came back. Okay. Um, um, so that's the spring of 67, and then um, did you guys go back to Washington, D.C. for the for the 68 hearings, I would say. Was, was there any trip back before the 68 hearings? You know, I don't remember. Okay. <clears throat> I remember making a speech, though, about a separate nation. Up here or back and, there? Uh, Washington State. Hmm. You went down to Washington? I went down to Washington. It was uh, March of 68, I think it was. Hmm. Or 60, 68 or 69. And, uh, <clears throat> we got invitation from the Northwest Federated Tribes to come down and talk about land claims. So on my way down, I was wondering, you know, what can I say that's meaningful? <clears throat> We've been testifying for three years, Congress had hearings, and we had the bills in, and task force were going, and all these kind of things. I said, well, that's part of it. But, <clears throat> but we, we go, what led up to my speech was, we'd go back to Washington, and uh, we'd be scheduled for a two o'clock hearing. And we'd go down to ready to testify, and they'd say, well, it's delayed till tomorrow. Why are we delayed? Because there's SST hearings. SST was a big debate in '68. <clears throat> SST hearings, and say, well, good on. Well, there's a big march on Washington. There's civil rights, and all these this turmoil, Vietnam War, everything was going on, and we were just kind of at the end of the line when they had time for us. So I think to myself, I got to say something to to get their attention that we're serious. I want the guy. In, Missouri to say what the hell is this all about, you know? So thinking how to say that. So I, in my speech, I said uh, the United States sends peacekeeping forces all around the world. We pretend to be the police force peacekeepers of the world. We've spent billions of dollars to reestablish the country of Israel for people who've been persecuted and scattered around the world. Um, <clears throat> How can they do less for people who lost all of North America? If Congress cannot see its way clear to give us 40 million acres of land, then I would propose to my board of directors that we go to the United Nations or World Court and lay out our case. 
and propose to them that they set up a separate nation for indigenous people of North America to govern themselves and would draw a line from Anchorage to Fairbanks and east of the Canadian border and everything north and west of that was ours. And uh, so that was it. That would left Alaska was uh, without oil wealth. <laughs> so, exactly. Uh, well, did that get a lot of press? It I mean, did got, yeah. Uh, uh, <clears throat> Stan Patty was at the there. He wrote a story at a PI. Um, I, I got to hit AP and I got clippings from around the country. I don't know how people found me, but I got clippings from around the country. It got printed all over little newspapers. Um, C.R. Lewis got up on the floor of the Senate in Alaska and uh, just practically called me communist. Uh, we got a personal editorial out of the Anchorage Times entitled Surely Mr. Naughty Jests, because I talked about closing borders and you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so I think it, it had the effect of, well, I wanted Jackson to know that I was in his backyard meeting with his constituents, talking about our problems, so that he would devote some attention to it. And uh, I like to think that it made a difference. All right, well, now, uh, let me ask you about that. In, in the summer of 68, there were hearings in Washington, D.C., both in front of Senator Jackson's committee, and uh, also for the first time, I think it was the first House hearings in front of Aspinall. Um, did you guys have occasion to meet with Jackson and Aspinall at that point? Or did you just deal with them primarily through the formal hearing structure? Uh, mostly through the formal hearings. We had one dinner with Aspinall, but... Uh, he was not real sympathetic, and and he was outspoken about it. He was critical of us, and, uh, but he also wanted to uh, solve it. <coughs> Between Jackson and Aspinall, they had 60 years of dealing with Indian problems. <coughs> and, uh, and it was a time of activism. People all over the country were... Is different than today. We've right. gone much more conservative today than we were then. Right. Well, actually, I want to <coughs> I want to ask about that in, in a second. Um, well, so then up we have the hearings in '68, um, and Hickel says he can take 40 million acres, but attaches all these conditions. The Interior Department says they can't take 40 million acres. Um, it's at that point, I think, that Jackson finally gives up and gets the field committee involved in doing the, their study. Um, so pretty much things are on, are on ice um, again. And we go into both the 1968 AFN meeting and also there's an election that year. So let me back up um, and go back to 66 and ask you um, what your impression was as to whether or not uh, uh, the native vote um, had any influence in the 66 election before we get to Greening, where it obviously did in 68. But, but uh, obviously in 66, Egan got taken down by, by Wally Hickel, and also uh, um, Ralph Rivers had been cut up pretty badly by Gravel 
and then eventually lost to Pollock. Um, back in '66, was was that just happenstance? Do you think there was any kind of native vote that influenced the Hickel River situation then, or or was that just luck? Well, I think uh, for the first time in '66, the native you start to see erosion of the Democratic vote by native people. Hickel was able to to make some inroads into traditionally democratic strongholds, uh, and I think it was significant to for uh, for Hickel to win that he got that native vote. This would be out of the bush. Out of the bush. <clears throat> Do you know how he did that? Did he have were there prominent people in the native community who were out stumping for him? Or? Yeah, I don't remember exactly who, what areas, but. Uh, <coughs> But I think the Middle Yukon area went for him. Um, trying to think of some of the issues, why people were mad at Egan, but um, maybe the highway system a little bit. But, it, but it, at that point, the, the land issue for Egan hadn't become not yet enough of a problem. Not that, that was. Not, it was. It was always festival, but it wasn't a real issue. It was, uh, uh, he kind of ignored the issue. He, he didn't really have to deal with it. How about Ralph Rivers? Ralph Rivers, I don't think, had any feeling at all for it. If he stayed in office, I suspect he would have been opposed to it. Yeah, well, I mean, was Gravel out uh, making an issue of the native land thing at that point? In 66? Yeah. So, he. He's somebody I want to talk to at some point. In terms of, he seems to have figured out quite early that the native community was. He came on strong with support. Okay. Well, then let's let's turn to '68. Then uh, obviously Gravel had a lot of native support, um, and I assume that that was because Greening's attitude about land claims at that point was was insufficient for you guys. Is that what was Egan or what was Greening's? attitude about all this? I always thought that uh, <clears throat> it was strange that uh, Greening was a strong advocate for Israel and not an advocate for Native people in Alaska. He, but he, again, never really had to face it. Uh, he came down to CINA and made some speeches, but his speeches were always, uh, I support as governor of Alaska, <clears throat> I supported human rights. I passed the first bill. I tore down signs in restaurants that said no Filipinos, dogs, or natives allowed. I, he did that kind of stuff, but he never really had to face the land issue. <clears throat> so Bartlett Greening and Rivers um, never really dealt with it. <coughs> we had a whole new team. Right, well, how did how did you guys get involved with Gravel? Did Gravel come and make a pitch on on land claims to to you folks, or he was one of the guys in '66 who hosted a a lunch or a dinner for delegates, and he was involved as Speaker of the House with formation of the Human Rights Commission. Uh, he was active. He would he would go to the to the. Uh, Meetings like CINA and A and B and say the right things. 
So he was he was working at it. He was concentrating on that minority vote, rural vote. Okay. And then I guess sort of getting to the sort of the end of all of this for the for the moment. Uh, you mentioned that before you came on full time at AFN that you had been working for the the predecessor agency of of rural cap and and obviously Charlie at one point had been involved with with the early OEO days and I was just curious that that just about the time that that the native community was starting to get organized it was also the time that the OEO Act came on in '64. And uh, I guess I'd be curious on your views as to what the relationship was between the war on poverty and the money and the jobs that were put out by that and the ability of the Native community to get itself organized. Was that, a, um, was that an important part of it, or was that just happenstance? Or were they on Well, the it was happenstance, but it turned out to be an important part of it. I know they like to think that they were the father of land claims, getting El Fothergill uh, mm -hmm. Considered himself as uh, impetus behind it. While they <clears throat> they did provide uh, money and allowed people to attend meetings and travel and do things that were never available before, it was part of the whole national movement uh, in human rights that uh, they came into existence. It wasn't because of land claims. Land claims just happened to be there right. at that time. So they they did play a role and an important role. But but they weren't the the, uh, the nucleus of it. Okay, well, I'm, I guess another way to ask the same question is is um, if the jobs that were were being provided to guys like yourself and Charlie and, and others and the and the OEO money that was floating through the state, if that had not been available, would the native community still have been able to get itself as organized as it became, or do you think that it was really the Tionic hundred grand and, and the rest? I guess I'm trying to get at is just sort of what what the really well, difference it made, if any. It made a difference. The, the Tionic money was important to get the ball rolling. After they got that initial start and awareness, then <clears throat> then Rural Cap stepped in uh, and picked up and spent a lot of money on. It travel and chartered airplanes and meetings and all kinds of stuff that they <clears throat> that uh, would not have happened without them. Even I think there's more world cap money in in travel and meetings than there was state money. Mm. <coughs> because the state budget for that for that uh, Rural Affairs Commission was, was not all that great. Thirty thousand or something, you know. Mm. Well then I think maybe the the last thing to talk about and then I'd like to come back in a couple months and talk about 69 on but uh, the last thing that happens is um, is that everything is sort of <clears throat> on ice in 68 uh, Udall comes up after the election and announces the super land freeze and then lo and behold who gets appointed governor I mean appointed secretary but but Wally Hickel of all people and and the trouble he got into both with the environmental community and also with you guys on the land freeze is well well documented but I would be curious um, obviously he had to backtrack a little bit when he went in front of Senator Jackson <laughs> about the land freeze. I think that was and, a key issue in his nomination. Right and and I was curious as to what did uh, did you guys go back and meet with Jackson or what was your involvement in? We were very involved in that. Uh, 
December of 68, I got a call about 5 o'clock from Cliff Grove. He said, Emo, the Secretary of the Interior wants to meet you in his home. And it took me just a second to say, okay, I'll meet, but I don't know where he lives. <clears throat> so he said, I'll pick you up. So Cliff Grove came and picked me up. We drove out to Hickel's home. When we walked into the Hickel's home, there were two people there. Bob Zelnick from ABC News now, but he was a daily news reporter, and Larry Fanning. And they had with them what they let me read would have been tomorrow morning's uh, Jack Anderson column. And uh, it said, Hickel does not deserve to be Secretary of the Interior because of his, his handling of the fish flap and Bethel during the summer. <clears throat> and they said, uh, what, 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 what could I do about it? Could I counter that in the national media by giving them an uh, endorsement from AFM? And I said, yes, we could give you an endorsement, but first of all, we got to clear it with my board. Uh, second thing, they said, do, do you have any influence with uh, NCIA? <clears throat> They asked you if you had any influence. Yeah. Right? And I said, yes, we do. And I said, of the discussion with Emil Nadi on November 15th, 1989, in his office at ANF, and we were just discussing uh, <clears throat> the efforts that AFN made to make sure that, that uh, then Governor Hickel, when he was confirmed the Secretary of the Interior, would not undo the land freeze that. Secretary Udall had imposed before he left um, office, and we were just discussing the fact that. Um, oh, sure. Um, we're back on the record, and what we were discussing was um, uh, the efforts uh, surrounding the Hickel confirmation to make sure that that uh, under his administration the department did not lift the land freeze, and we've been discussing on the other tape that. Um, <clears throat> Imanati had gotten a call from Cliff Grow and uh, had been invited out to Governor Hickel's home in Anchorage uh, to discuss um, whether or not AFN and, and perhaps through AFN's influence in CAI might endorse um, Hickel uh, for being secretary. And I guess that was about the time the tape went off, so maybe we could pick it up from there. I said, yeah, I thought we could. So, but the, uh, I need to talk to our board of directors, so I called an emergency meeting, and uh, <clears throat> they said, uh, take uh, take three guys with you and go back to Washington, D.C., and you can, they gave me carte blanche, said, unanimous vote, you can endorse, you can withhold endorsement, or you can oppose, based on the testimony. And uh, so I went back to the, that was a five o'clock meeting. Now, did you talk about the land freeze when you were at Hickel's home? Did he? Yes. Yeah. I, that's one of the things I said to him. I said, yeah, I think I could. But before I do that, um, what's your position on land freeze? And he said, well, uh, I've been talking to people about that. And I'm going to protect the interests of the native people. He said, I want to escrow money. And I uh, want to make sure they get a fair deal. So, uh, but we're, we're concerned. We're going to look out for that. <clears throat> and I said, that's good, but, but will you hold the land freeze? 
and they said, well, you know, I've got, I've got some ideas about what I can do about these things, you know. And I said, well, if I endorse you and uh, you lift the land freeze, I'd look like a fool because we fought real hard to get that land freeze and to hold it. And I said, I can't endorse you without a public promise that you would do it. And he said, well, uh, I've, been, I've got plans. I've talked to people. I want to escrow money and do these things. And so we, I kind of left it like that. Obviously, he wasn't going to answer me, so I didn't want to impress him. So we left him. And I talked to Cliff Grobot, and I said, Cliff, he's got to promise me to hold the land freeze. Because Cliff was real close to him. He was kind of intermediate. And he said, he, he told you he'd look out for your interests. I said, well, that's not good enough. I said, what he tells me in private is not good enough because his record as governor was that the land freeze was illegal. What he said publicly in Seattle was he could undo it with a stroke of a pen. I said, uh, my word is nothing against the governor of Alaska or Secretary of Interior. He's got to say publicly that he endorses land freeze. Then I will recommend uh, uh, an endorsement. And he said, you're calling him a liar and you don't trust him. I said, no, that's not true at all. I'm not calling him a liar. Or not that I don't trust him. I said, but I need more than that. I can't just go on faith. So <clears throat> Cliff quit over that issue of being the AFN attorney. And I didn't, I didn't like to see him quit because he was a smart and strategist. And, and he knew everybody that had the contacts and he could uh, intermediate for us on tough issues. But... But he felt real strongly that Hickel ought to be Secretary of Interior and that I was an obstructionist, so he quit us. He didn't feel he could continue working for us. So when we left that meeting, we called a special AFN meeting. At 5 o'clock, they said, go back to D.C. <clears throat> so 11 o'clock that night, we went back to D.C. And I took uh, John Borbridge, Willie Hensley, and Evan Hobson. That's two weeks before the nomination. We spent two weeks in D.C. Uh, on the Hickel nomination. <clears throat> and we would walk into the senator's office and say, Ace, any senator. So we're from Alaska. Uh, interior senator. I mean, interior committee senator. Interior committee <clears throat> senator. And uh, say we're from Alaska, and they immediately pull us in. So you got to see the senators we, as opposed yeah, to the they, staff they, guys? The aides immediately took us, in most cases, right into the seat of the senator. And, and the questions were pretty much the same. They had seen movies <clears throat> of, uh, of Hickel uh, talking to the press. They were concerned about And there were a lot of stories floating around about his uh, dealings with uh, the Kenai gas wells, about his involvement with, uh, maybe it's uh, some uh, Texas firm that dealt with, Maybe Enstar, I'm not sure. <coughs> um, about his hotels, about a lot of things. And we, as we kept saying, we don't know anything about his business dealings. We heard about the land freeze. So we had a lot of meetings about that. When we got to the hearings itself... Did you, did you have a chance to talk to Senator Jackson? We talked to Jackson. We talked to his aides. We, were, we talked to Jackson, then we talked to his aides very... Almost hourly. It was Van Ness or? Van Ness was deeply involved in that. And he uh, was the key head guy that we dealt with. And during the hearings, uh, Jackson, the first, there was three-day hearings. 
Jackson uh, talked about the land freeze. Well, Hickel had appointed Stevens. So Stevens was a junior senator. He'd only been there a couple of months. And he was just learning the ropes. And uh, every time Hickel got in a tight spot, Stevens would say, oh, Mr. Chairman, maybe I can help the governor out. And being a lawyer, he was smooth and articulate. And, and Hickel was uh, kind of stumbled on his answers. If he wasn't uh, briefed real well, he had a hard time offering an extemporaneous answer you know, to, to these guys who were real experience. So <clears throat> Stevens helped him out an awful lot for three days. And, uh, and, uh, <coughs> I barked. So, let's see. Well, what? There's a second. Sure. You need to see Ruth? <coughs> Let me ask you to sort of maybe get things sure. Back on the narrative, back on track. Did uh, when you met with Jackson and, and Van Ness before the hearing started, did did they make any commitments at that point as to how what what Senator Jackson's view was of the land freeze and what they were prepared to do to help you out? Not what they were prepared to do, but they were made very clear that they wanted the land freeze held, and uh, <clears throat> so. We gave them all the questions we could. We wrote out questions and gave it to the staff. The staff gave the senator, and, and sitting in the audience, we were reading our questions verbatim to the governor, you know, trying to pin them down. And <coughs> so they, they all around this land freeze thing, and, and the first day. And then the second day, uh, they got back to the land freeze. And, uh, and while, during the session, we went around back and door and knock on door and give a question and Abe come out and give it to a senator and read the question and not just Jackson some of the others and but we could never pin him down because you have to be well briefed when he answers a question to, to step in front of that question and ask the next one because he was sliding by them so it was kind of not a very efficient system the third day Jackson said uh, we were going down by seniority, and he said, before we start the hearings, Governor, he said, we've dealt with an issue for the past two days, <clears throat> and I thought we were uh, done with it. But after reading the record last night, I'm not too sure that we are. And he said, I want to, before we get started, I want to ask you once more what you intend to do about the land freeze. And I thought, sitting in the audience, I said, this is the question. This is up or down. Hickel's nomination hangs in the balance right here. And and he knew it. He said, uh, Senator, I will hold the land freeze. And then I thought Jackson overstepped his authority, but he got Hickel to agree to it. And he said, will you come back to this committee before you dispose of land? Hickel gave up his uh, administrative responsibilities when he said he would clear any land transactions with the, with the committee. Hmm. So to that extent, he sort of let Jackson be Secretary of the Interior. Right. And uh, so that's how the land freeze was held. <clears throat> he pinned him down with the yes or no, will you hold a land freeze? Hmm. Now, did, did you guys then go out and endorse Hickel, or what, what happened? Well, after that, we... <clears throat> uh, when it came to the public testimony part of it, we marched forward and said that 
based on the testimony, uh, we support the nomination of Walter Hickel for Secretary of Interior. We had an argument within ourselves, amongst ourselves, about how strongly we endorsed it. We don't do the rally and draw a law, or just say we, based on the testimony, we support it. So that's we gave we gave firm support, but not exuberant support. And uh, <clears throat> during the the third day, we would we'd get down to the hearings at seven in the morning just to get a seat. You know, we'd line up until he opened the doors. You had to get in line in order to get a seat. So we always wanted to get a good seat, but. The third day we went into the hearing room, the first two rows were blocked off. So we were in the third row. There's Borbridge, Hensley, and Evan Hobson and I. And <clears throat> the hearings get started. About five minutes before the hearings start, in marches all of these Alaska people and filled the first two rows. There were three rows in the Senate hearing room, reserved for the jet, jet load airport. Of people from Alaska who went down there to support Wally Hickel. <coughs> natives or non-natives? Snedden from Fairbanks, mm -hmm. Lou Williams from Ketchikan, Bob Atwood from Anchorage, Jesse Carr, Louis Dishner, Ray Christensen, Lori Lekanon. Mm -hmm. Some of the guys who voted for us go down there and hold the land trees. <coughs> and uh, this is before before the hearing started, so he hadn't capitulated right. yet. So before they started, Jack uh, Stephen said, uh, I would like to introduce and ask all these good Alaskans who support Hickel for Secretary of Interior to stand. So these first three rows of people stand up. We didn't stand because we hadn't arrived at that decision yet. So it was tough to sit there and have these guys look back and say, what the hell's wrong with you? Don't you support our government for Secretary of Interior? But, but Ray Chris and Larry Lekhanoff stood up with everybody else. Yeah, well, they were part of it. Right, group. right. Did, did you <coughs> talk to them about that afterwards, or what did they say? Well, they, they just, they were Republicans, you know, they couldn't uh, resist, they were asked, <coughs> and they couldn't say no. <coughs> John Sackett, who was at the board meeting, voted unanimously to send me back there. Then they sent telegrams saying they supported Hickel. And we'd walk into a senator's office, and they said, what about this native group that supports us? We'd have to poo-poo it. This is ten of our chiefs, sir. <clears throat> yeah. And, and so we'd have to say, uh, well, you know, we, we do represent the majority and all this kind of <clears throat> stuff, but we'd have to justify our stand as well as minimize theirs. <clears throat> so when we came back at the next board meeting, I said to them, we said, don't you ever do that to me again. I'm back there carrying your water, taking a lot of heat, on your unanimous vote to have me do that, and then you send individual telegrams saying you support Hickel, you know, on whatever the issue is. So if you if you send me out there as a spear carrier, you guys support me. So uh, it wasn't real easy. Well, I guess probably a good place to to stop for the moment. I guess the two quick follow-up questions. One is uh, obviously at at that confirmation hearing um, is when Ted Stevens really first appears in terms of the congressional process on the scene. And I guess the first question is, um, did you talk to, to Ted as you were making the rounds about the land freeze? And what, what was he telling you at that point? Well, he, he was, uh, he wouldn't exactly say he didn't like the land for 
wouldn't support it, but he he never really gave us support. Uh, he kept saying, well, there's got to be a way to make everybody happy and have progress in Alaska and have the economy go and, and still protect our rights, but he never, but he wouldn't really support us. Okay, well, what about, um, was he on the scene before his appointment? Um, obviously, he'd been in the legislature. Um, and he'd been obviously up in Fairbanks, and I know he'd done some work for the Minto people at one point. Um, had you had any dealings with Stevens before his appointment? Not much. He was actually on both sides of the question because he represented, I think, uh, Mobile Oil, one of the oil yeah. companies, and then some native groups. But uh, he wasn't really involved in any of the formulation of policy on our positions. <coughs> Um, and then I guess the last thing is, and you sort of reminded me of it, and that is, um, um, what was the role, if any, in the early days of getting this organized, of the Association on American Indian Affairs and Bill Byler and those people? Were they um, involved at all in the CINA days or in the early AFN organizing days? Well, I always thought their role was pretty narrow. They raised a lot of money, I'm told, back in New York because of the native land claims in Alaska. They never really helped AFN directly. They always supported Tanma Chiefs. And I think they put a lot of money into Elkett's through into Tanma Chiefs and those meetings, but not much for AFN. So uh, when you were organizing the 66 meeting, <coughs> they were not involved in no. Okay. Okay, well, I uh, very much appreciate the time. Well, one other comment. Sure, go I ahead. I think we hit a window of time in events where we maximize land and money. Uh, five years earlier, before we were organized, I think if they came into Alaska and said, we're going to sign this piece of paper, we'll, give, we'll distribute $50 million in Alaska, people would have went for it. I think if they had come in and said, uh, to the villagers, how would you like to have uh, you know, 10,000 acres around your village? for your exclusive use, they probably would have signed for it. <coughs> but uh, there, was, uh, there was no real discovery of oil yet. They, there was a lot of work some people might have known, but it wasn't public knowledge. And once they hit oil, we could never have gotten 40 million acres of land. Uh, Without the pipeline. Sorry? Without the pipeline and the <coughs> Bay and... Right. And we wouldn't have got that land after the fact. If the, today we couldn't get 40 million acres. Right. And if they'd have moved earlier, we, uh, we wouldn't have got the money. So I think we had a window of maximum land and money. For, I don't think we could match it today in either instance. Time we lost a major portion of the bill. It wasn't really a negotiated settlement. It was uh, unilateral. They went behind closed doors, came out with a bill and said, here it is. And in that bill, we lost a major issue. That's 2% in perpetuity. Right. Well, I want to come back. Uh, obviously, I've done a little bit of homework up through 68, and I want to be able to come back and, and ask you about all that. But I, Oh, and I guess one final thing is you mentioned that, uh, that uh, in terms of uh, Bill Paul's involvement, that that he, you didn't see his fingerprints around early on with Nick Gray. When, when did he, when or I guess if, um, did, did he become 
visible at AFN uh, after the organizing meeting? or Yeah, it was after the organizing meeting. He started writing letters. We've been reading about our positions, and he was pointing out our errors to us. And uh, and then he would show up at our meetings, and, uh, and he would testify at hearings. And whatnot. I remember one time I was going back to D.C., and I said, uh, I want to bring Bill Paul back. Uh, there was opposition to it. Inside the AFN board? Inside the AFN. And he said, don't bring him back. It's going to hurt us. And I said, wait a minute. He's got a perspective that we don't agree with, maybe. It doesn't agree with our position. But I think it's worthwhile to have it on the record. And so I paid his way back from AFN, even though uh, some of the key guys in AFN didn't like it. And, and he took a position that wasn't ours, but I thought it was important. Did he ever show up on your doorstep and start to cultivate you when you figured out you were a... Uh, yeah. Yeah, he made a point. We got, we got to know each other pretty good. Okay, okay well, I probably that's uh, it for November uh, 15th, and I appreciate it, and uh, we'll see you in the spring, hopefully. Okay.